Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Do you think maybe you have a family member or someone you love who's gotten kind of boggled up by a conspiracy theory or could be or might be one day? Perhaps you'd like to know how susceptible you are to conspiratorial thinking. If so, check out theconspiracytest.org. Go there, take it. It's like a personality quiz, except it's to see how susceptible you are to conspiratorial thinking. And you'll get a score you can share with other people. Or you can just send the link to someone who you think would really benefit from taking a conspiracy test. Conspiracytest.org, theconspiracytest.org. Both of those work. Check it out. Also, thecriticalthinkingalliance.org. If you'd like a ton of resources for intellectual humility, critical thinking, media literacy, and so on, you can find all of these things at thecriticalthinkingalliance.org. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 276. I'm recording this as we're about to head into the holidays in 2023, and if you are feeling those feelings because you're about to have those conversations with those people who make you go, well, this episode is for you. If you've been listening to this podcast for more than a few months, then you are likely well aware that I wrote a book. And that book came out about a year ago, and it's titled How Minds Change. And I just wrapped up a 23-city lecture tour for that book. I'm working on a new book about what does the word genius mean, while also just going everywhere to talk about how minds change. It really found its audience this year, and I went to the Netherlands and Nashville and London and Toronto and Montreal and New York City and San Francisco and many other places. I spoke at NASA and the School of Life and the Knight of Philosophy and Stanford University's D School and Ole Miss and Radboud University and Square Books and Bridgewater College, many fantastic institutions and events. I also visited Gettysburg where I helped consult a little bit with Braver Angels. I joined the Alliance for Decision Education and the School of Thought. It's been a big How Minds Change year. And if you don't mind a little extra self-promotion here, if you'd like me to come speak at your event or institution, I'm already putting together next year's calendar. Just email me at davidmcraney at gmail.com or click the links at davidmcraney.com. And I plan to do an old-fashioned bookstore, bar, and coffee shop tour. So if you work at or own one of those things, email me. Or if you'd just like to attend, I'll post all the details once it comes together. So... To promote the book, I also appeared as a guest on more than 40 podcasts. I think maybe more than 50 podcasts. It was a lot of podcasts. And I keep doing those from time to time. I recorded two this week. But there was one in particular that I just keep getting emails about. And the people who make the show keep getting emails about it too. The topic of that particular episode of that particular show is particularly relevant when I'm recording this the week leading into the holidays of 2023, and I asked the producers of that podcast if they'd be okay with me running that very popular episode as an episode of You Are Not So Smart, and they said, absolutely, please do, and so that is what this episode will be. The show is Gaslit Nation, co-hosted by writers Sarah Kinzior and Andrea Chalupa, both of whom are amazing writers who have all sorts of books and other things out there you should check out. And their podcast 
is all about authoritarian states and what leads to them. It covers the news, but in a very deep and actually let's talk to experts kind of way. And some of the recent episodes have been about hypernormalization, inshitification, and the reality TVification of, well, just about everything. But in particular, in that episode, it was the reality TVification of Congress. Some of the guests they've had have been Douglas Rushkoff and Malcolm Nance and Cory Doctorow. And the episode you're about to hear is titled How to Stand Up to a Bully. And in it, I talk all about that very thing, citing the psychological research covered in How Minds Change related to this topic. Research with findings that can help anyone who expects to spend time with a family member this holiday who can't wait to pull you into an argument about politics or a wedge issue or something else buzzing in the zeitgeist, something they'd love to fight you over. But it's also good stuff to know before any contentious conversation you might have in the future with someone who is quick to aggression and ready to get angry about how your opinion isn't their opinion. As Gaslit Nation put it in the description for this episode, quote, one of the questions we often get from our listeners is how to help loved ones lost to a disinformation cult. And that's something we will discuss in what you're about to hear. I'll have links to everything in the show notes for this episode and over at youarenotsosmart.com. And if you'd like to hear this episode ad-free or any episode ad-free, just head to Patreon and pitch in at any amount. All next year, I'll be doing special events and offering bonus content over on this show's Patreon. It's something I did not do enough of while I was working on how minds change and promoting it, but I will remedy that in 2024, starting with the patrons-only reading of an entire chapter. Okay, that's a lot of intro, a lot of self-promotion. Thank you for indulging all of that. From here on out, you'll be hearing an episode of Gaslit Nation, in which I was the guest right around the 4th of July. The host is Andrea Chalupa, and the topic was how to stand up to a bully. This is a very serious conversation, obviously, for a very serious time. And um, I want to say thank you for doing this. Yeah, of course. The big discussion, obviously, is your book is everything right now, How Minds Change. One of the uh, questions we get often from our listeners at Gaslit Nation, and also that we hear a lot among our friends and family today, is how we're losing people. Families are getting broken apart. Long friendships are getting broken apart because people are, are getting sucked into these different realities. And it's just us versus them, political, toxic culture. What did you find in working on your book, How Minds Change? Is it possible to change a mind, especially when you've lost someone to such a toxic, quote-unquote, reality? Sure. And I understand all this frustration. I mean, I was in that same place when I started this whole this whole project. You know, I had to change my own mind in the process. It was It's one of those things that ended up being a good, like, marketing and interview moment to tell people I changed my mind in the process of writing a book about how people change their minds. But I never intended for that. It was very much a surprise. My original viewpoint on all this going into it was you couldn't reason a person out of a position they didn't reason themselves into, uh, that there were certain people were absolutely off-limits, unreachable. And I don't feel that way anymore. I feel like there's no one who is beyond the reach of persuasion. There's no one who can't be illuminated. There's no one who is actually unchangeable. I've started to see it more like we often use really poor tools. Oftentimes those tools are the ones that come to us intuitively. But it's kind of like trying to reach the moon with a ladder over and over again. And when you fail you eventually throw up your hands and say, the moon's unreachable. It just turns out you're using a really ineffective tool to get there. And I see that over and over again because I was the kind of person that would do that. I would get in arguments with family members. I would get arguments with people on the internet. And I would enter in these debate frames where I was just trying to win or I was trying to dump a lot of facts on the other party, facts that I felt like were on my side. And they would either double down, triple down, or get very upset and angry, or they would wander into territory that didn't seem to make any sense to me, this in-group, out-group sort of thing. 
initially when I started the book, it came from this, I sort of, uh, I don't outright say this in the book, but I've said it in recalling how it all came together was there's sort of a peanut butter and chocolate of comeuppance in this, in this process. And the one is discovering the interactionist model and the other is discovering the truth wins model. Both these are psychological uh, premises that came to me in the process of reaching out to experts. See, I was invited to a lecture early on where a young woman came up to me afterward and said her father had fallen into a conspiratorial community and she asked, what can I do about it? And I remember very plainly stating to her, there's nothing you can do about it. And I felt awful right away, partially because I didn't want to be so pessimistic and so doomsayer about things. But the other was, I just wasn't sure I even believed that. I knew I didn't have enough expertise to be giving out advice like that. I was talking about biases and fallacies and heuristics and motivated reasoning, but I wasn't talking about persuasion. At the same time that happened, the attitudes in the United States towards, and the beliefs and the values towards same-sex marriage changed so dramatically over the course of about a decade. If you were involved in the activism, you were aware that that took a lot longer than a decade, but the charted on a graph, I had a political scientist on my podcast tell me it was the fastest recorded shift in public opinion. And sure enough, it went from 60 plus percent of Americans were opposed to the legality of same-sex marriage to 60 plus percent of Americans were in favor. And that shift took place in roughly a decade. So clearly people can change their minds is what I thought when I looked at all that. I just didn't understand how it actually worked. And so the book builds up to persuasion. I never even intended for the book to address persuasion. I just wanted to understand what happens in a person's brain. Like if I took somebody from now and put them in a time machine back to when the majority of the United States was opposed to same-sex marriage, what would be the difference in their brains and what happened between those two points? And building up from understanding how we change our minds about anything helped me understand why we would resist doing such a thing in certain scenarios. And I eventually was able to meet all these different organizations who actively work with those forms of resistance and, and have learned ways to bypass them. Street epistemology, motivational interviewing, deep canvassing, and several others. And the thing that really blew my mind when I met those groups, and I was embedded, the, this book is a very on-the-ground embedded book where I would spend time with all the people that I interviewed, and I would go door-to-door -door with them and conversation to conversation and train in their techniques. And I started to notice that all of their techniques had pretty much the same steps in the same order. And they did all this independently. They weren't aware of the other groups. They often were not aware of the science that supported what they were doing. And it seemed so marvelous once I realized that, oh, this is, is how brains work. And if you're devoted to trying to understand how to get past the frustrations that you asked about, you will eventually find all this if you're devoted to it. Like in these groups, the street epistemology and deep canvassing both have uh, deep canvassing in particular, they, when I spent time with them, they had uh, engaged in 17,000 one-on-one conversations at people's front doors about wedge issues. And they had recorded them on video and they tossed out what didn't work. They kept what did work. And they slowly zeroed in on a technique that is very, very effective. So effective that social scientists are still studying them today. And I started to see all their techniques as something akin to, if you take the airplane that, that the Wright brothers created, the, the Kitty Hawk uh, aircraft. If you like show that to any child, like right now, this year, if you like make a TikTok that just shows it fly by, like every kid will identify that as an airplane because airplanes have a certain form, a certain shape, a certain design to them. So no, no matter who would have created the first aircraft and no matter who makes an aircraft today, they look like airplanes. And why do they look like airplanes? Because they're trying to overcome certain obstacles to flying around. Uh, they're having to deal with gravity and wind resistance and material science and weight and balance. All these things combine to when you overcome all of that, you end up with a certain form. And this is also true of the rhetorical techniques that actually work. They tend to take on a certain form because this is how one brain interacts with another brain when certain things are on the line, like identity in-group, out-group status, the ideas like reactants, all of these things combine into there is a way of, of going about doing this that we often do poorly, I guess, is, is my overall <laughs> answer to this question. So I was very surprised to learn that all of this works. So I see things differently now. I see that um, 
I, I've become a, a great proselytizer. There's no fanatic like a convert, I guess. And so I'm, I'm very converted to trying to spread the good news of, yes, we can reach out to the people who, who seem lost to us. And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsors. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's, here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week, and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything, and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases 
all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. This sort of cult-like thinking that we've seen people get sucked into Mm -hmm. from being anti-mask, anti-vaccine, comparing those pandemic safety measures to what Jewish people experienced in Nazi Germany and so on, to the Flat Earth Society, to like a long list of things that we're all sort of dealing with today, QAnon, of course. With this sort of alternative reality that many people around the world are getting sucked into, there's a toxic culture of bullying. So the the original idea for this conversation was to understand from somebody that's gone through the rabbit hole of trying to get a grip on persuasion, what works, what doesn't, and why. At the heart of that is really how do you stand up to a bullying culture? Because it's bullying what we're ultimately witnessing, where people are basically being convinced to act against their own interests. Like there was that famous line of a daughter saying how her father died from a pre-existing condition. And the pre-existing condition was that she believed that he believed Donald Trump and, and he therefore, you know, lost his life in the pandemic. He didn't take the precautions that he should have been taking. And so my question to you is, if you were coming to you, like, how do we stand up to a bullying culture? How do we stand up to the bullies in our lives? And that's such an important discussion to have because we're asking people to stay engaged, to stay active, to knock on doors, to get out the vote, to make phone calls, to get out the vote, to run for office themselves, to be election observers because we need good people to be election observers, poll monitors. We're losing some really good talent on the front lines of protecting our democracy because of such a toxic, deliberately engineered bullying culture. So please, if you could just go at it for like 30 (laughs) minutes now the floor is yours how do we stand up to a bully um this is going to require something of the people who are interested in this that is going to be at first blush it's going to feel like i can't believe you're asking me to do this it's going to require empathy specifically something that my uh friends at nyu call cognitive empathy which is to understand that human beings are motivated reasoners uh, that we believe things for reasons. And if you want to take all the things that make up a mind when we're thinking about changing minds and reduce them to something that we can discuss easily, we get to talk about it in terms of, say, beliefs, attitudes, and values. And these are very different mental constructs. A belief is an estimation of whether or not something is or is not true. And we kind of measure that emotionally with confidence. How much confidence do you have that this is or is not a true statement. Then attitudes are sort of, these are valenced estimations of, of positive or negative qualities. So we often get these two mixed up because if I ask you, is chocolate ice cream delicious? And you say yes, and it can feel like you believe chocolate ice cream is delicious, but it's not really a belief. That's an attitude. You have a positive association with this thing. So it's important to see that as separate from belief. You can believe that you have a positive attitude toward chocolate ice cream. So you can see that it starts to getting nice and, and complex very quickly. And then a value is going to be, where do you think you ought to put your time, money, and effort? Where should you be putting all of your resources? And what's most important to you in that way? And a person who isn't doing such a thing or is working against that could be seen as someone who is violating your value structure. So those are the three things that are always changing. Human minds are constantly changing in those three regards through a process called assimilation and accommodation. And I'm going to explain this because it's important to get to why uh, certain things work and certain things don't. Assimilation and accommodation are how we change our minds. Um, This goes all the way back to some of the first psychologists, uh, Jean Piaget and others. 
the my favorite way of explaining it is thinking of um, when a child sees a dog for the first time, and you say, oh, "Look, dog, dog, dog!" And all the adults love to you know help children learn words. Something sort of categorical happens in the mind of that child. They think, um, "Okay, non-human walks on the four legs, uh, not wearing clothes, covered in fur, got a tail. Got it. Dog. Appreciate that." Then later on, they may see a horse and they will point to the horse and say something like dog or they if they're a little more advanced they might say big dog this is an attempt at assimilation because from the child's perspective categorically this is a non-human walking on four legs not wearing clothes covered in fur got a tail seems to fit and then when you say no no that's not a dog that's a horse a child must then accommodate this means there must be more to the story there the category of dog in the category of horse for you to have these two different categories you must create a third category a larger category that subsumes those two that accommodates those two which would be something like animal or creature and this is continuously happening we're constantly assimilating and accommodating but the more complex your model of reality becomes the easier it becomes to assimilate things the easier it is to see something new as an example of what you already understand. And that takes a lot less cognitive effort, uh, even physically. It takes fewer calories, and it's what we all attempt to do in most situations until enough anomalies build up or there's enough that we face too many problems when it comes to attempting to make something fit into an existing understanding that we are sort of forced to accommodate. Oftentimes, that's what you'll be facing when you're talking to someone who sees the world differently than you and you're asking them to make sense of things. they probably already undergone a, a pretty intense assimilation effort and you're asking them to accommodate in some way and it's hard we resist it it's a natural form of resistance so the first kind of resistance you will face is this sort of i would rather not expend the cognitive effort it will take to accommodate this all gets complexified which is a word that i made up because i need i need a word to, <laughs> to make sense of most of the stuff and complex it becomes more complex when you consider we are also motivated reasoners this very simply means we often are trying to achieve a particular outcome, whether or not we're aware of it, when it comes to coming up with reasons for what we think, feel, and believe. My favorite example of this is if you ever had a friend who uh, recently fell in love with, they've recently fallen in love with someone, and you ask them, uh, what is it that you like about that person? And they say, um, oh, I like, I like the way they talk. I like the way, I mean, I could listen to them talk for hours, just the way their voice, oh, it's the best. And I like the way they walk, uh, just watching them cross the room. I can't get enough of it. I even like the music they're introducing me to. I can't get enough of that either. Uh, even the way they like cut their food. I could watch them cut their food. I, 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 everything, everything. So, you know, you're listening to this, you're nodding. And if you're a good friend, you're like, okay, okay. But if that same friend is breaking up with that exact same person a couple months later, and you ask them, what reasons do you have to want to break up with this person? It wouldn't be surprising for them to say, oh, well, I mean, the way they talk, uh, the way they walk, uh, can't, uh, you know, it's the, way, uh, the dumb music they make me listen to all the time. Even the way they cut their food. This is a person that takes a fork and a knife to a Snickers bar. I'm telling you, uh, this person is the worst. So reasons for can become reasons against when the motivation to search for reasons to justify your emotional state change. And that is a pretty clear indication that, oh, our reasoning is always motivated. And the strongest motivation for coming up with a reason for what we might think, feel, and believe isn't accuracy. It isn't being correct. I mean, we want to be correct as much as possible, but there is something that will supersede that, which is belonging. And that's because we're social primates. And this gets into the meat of what I think a lot of people are experiencing and are wondering, how could this be a thing that my friends and family are doing? Brooke Harrington, the great sociologist, told me that if there was an equals MC square social science, it would be the fear of social death is greater than the fear of physical death. So SD greater than PD. And our reputation, our status, the way we imagine ourselves in the eyes of others, as social primates, this is the thing that we care about the most of all things. It isn't irrational because for most of our evolutionary history, that's what determined whether or not we got to eat and sleep and survive attacks from bears and wolves and things. So when it comes down to it, 
if we feel like the ship is sinking, we will put our reputation in the lifeboat and we'll let our body go to the bottom of the ocean. This is where something we saw all the time and during COVID. Uh, people who were refusing to mask or refusing to get vaccinated, and even on their deathbeds, they would feel like they had made the right decision because they died still feeling like they had signaled they were a good member of their group to the peers they felt mattered to them. And one of the big epiphanies for me learning about all this was through something called the interactionist model of human cognition, which comes from the work of Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber. They helped me see that oftentimes I think we get in debates or to discussions and we want to appeal to logic and rationality and evidence, which are great things. Don't I will never say we shouldn't be doing that. But a lot of that falls under the category of reason, big R reason, like uh, propositional logic and those sorts of things. And in a good faith discussion, that's where you should go. If you're behind a lectern facing another person behind a lectern, that's what you should be doing. If you're a scientist who's producing papers that must be vetted in the marketplace of ideas of academia, great. Any place where you're playing by those rules, big R reason is the way to go. And big R reason is how we got to the moon. Big R reason is how we cured all sorts of diseases. It's how we have this software we're using to have this discussion with each other. But when you are facing off against someone in a disagreement of either perspective or facts or anything, we don't employ big R reason. We use little r reason, reasoning. We come up with reasons for what we think, feel, and believe. And we're always doing this. We're always looking for a justification, a rationalization, and an explanation for our thoughts, feeling, behaviors, and intentions to behave. And those reasons to be reasonable need to be something that we can, would consider others would find that to be a plausible justification. And the others we care about are the people in the social groups that we feel the most allegiance to, or the ones that our reputations are most hang in the balance with. All of that combines together to, here's sort of the pillars of what makes it so dangerous to be a member of the, uh, <laughs> the internet today, to be a, a citizen of the internet, to be a, a modern human being thrust into this epistemically chaotic information ecosystem where all the gatekeepers of yore have sort of fallen by the wayside and we're left out here in the desert of uh, of social media trying to figure out what is and isn't true. Um, number one, humans aren't just social creatures. We're ultra-social animals. That would be the way you'd be categorized by an anthropologist or a biologist. We're the kind of primate that survives by forming and maintaining groups. So, a whole lot of our innate psychology is about grouping up and then nurturing the group itself, curating cohesion between our peers. If the group survives, we survive. So all these emotions that everyone's familiar with, shame, embarrassment, ostracism, that's all about keeping the group healthy. And it's more about keeping the group healthy than it is about keeping yourself healthy or any one member healthy. So when it comes down to it, you would be willing to sacrifice yourself or others if the group will survive, if it comes to that. Another great pillar here is a lot of what we think of as our identity, for the most part, is just that which identifies us as being a member of the group. And when that comes under threat, uh, we will react very poorly. There's a lot of research in this. The great Henri Tajfel did wonderful research showing that there's no such thing as a minimal group paradigm, which is there is no single thing that is so small that people could not instinctively form a group around it very quickly. And one of the things that the internet has done is like given us the opportunity to form groups around all sorts of ideas. And that's what happens. Once you can identify an us separate from them, you will start favoring us over them. And in that kind of environment, anything can become a signal of loyalty or a, uh, a badge of honor or a mark of shame. And it can just it can be randomly assigned oftentimes. Masking up became a symbol that you were part of one group and not another. And there are all sorts of examples through the literature of things that were previously neutral and became politicized because at some point it became important to signal to other people how you felt about that thing. And I was told by uh, Dan Kahan at the Yale Cultural Cognition Laboratory, there's nothing that could not become politicized in that way. Like currently, fruit bats and volcanoes and tree frogs and the patina of the Martian atmosphere of Mars, these things are politically neutral, but they could easily become politicized, and if so, people would feel like they really needed to come down hard one way or another on it. And all this like, accumulates to mean that, uh, as crazy as this sounds, 
we will often act as if we disagree on certain fact-based issues, but all of that is performative. It is a form of, as Liliana Mason called it, uncivil agreement, where two groups disagree only because the issues become politicized. They don't actually, the facts of the matter are completely irrelevant to the discussion. Um, and a final note on all this is we're unaware we're doing all these things. These drives and motivations are usually inaccessible to us. So when we are trying to come up with reasons during a discussion with another person, these things will rarely come up, which is why a lot of the uh, rhetorical techniques that I cover in the book are all about helping people surface a lot of this stuff. Because once it is surfaced, it becomes really powerful. I talked to some scientists at NYU about this, and I was asking them about how, does, how do people fall into these conspiratorial groups, or how do people fall into these very politicized, very ultra right-wing, left-wing, how do people fall into these polarized political communities? And underneath it all is pretty much the same psychology as it was described to me. The the way they explained it to me was to imagine somebody sits down to watch a movie on Netflix and one person's thinking, I would like to watch something with Adam Driver in it. I don't care what it is, just Adam Driver. Uh, I think he's cool. I think he's kind of a weirdly ugly, sexy, Cro-Magnon kind of thing going on there. I don't know what it is I like about him, but he's fascinating to me, a good actor. I saw him in this one thing. What, what have I not seen? Click, 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 and you find Star Wars. Uh, the Force Awakens. And you're like, oh, I don't really like Star Wars stuff, but I'll watch this. And then you watch it and you enjoy it and you think, oh, is there, are there any more of these? And then you eventually find a subreddit where people are talking about it. And eventually that subreddit's asking you to look at this and the other thing. And you start having conversations there and your conversations start giving you a little bit of clout with the community and you start feeling like you are somebody there. You start forming an identity around the way you behave in that one group. And then at some point you switch over from, you may have gone there with the intention of discussing this issue, but now you go there for the feeling of belonging that is afforded. And it, that switches you over to a completely different set of psychological motivations than what got you there in the first place. Meanwhile, another person is getting on Netflix and they just want to watch some sci-fi. They want to watch something that's got a spaceship in it and an explosion. That's all I care about. And they find the same Star Wars movie and they think to themselves, I don't normally watch these because this is kind of like space opera. I wanted something that was more hardcore, but whatever. They watch it. They like it. They end up in that subreddit. They end up in that community for the same reasons. And at some point, these two people who enter the communities for completely different reasons are staying in the community for the same reasons. And if they go so far as to go to a convention and hang out in person and cosplay they will have their identity fully invested and they will defend a lot of the ideas and the values and the predominant cultural signals that are within that group. And I had this described to me, many people will fall into one of these communities either because they are trying to establish a reputation that they don't already have, or they're trying to defend something they feel that out there in the, uh, the public discourse is looked down upon. So they have completely different reasons for joining the conversation. But once they're in the conversation, the conversation kind of falls away and they just become a person who wants to go hang out with people who will hang out with them. That's sort of the process that a lot of people get uh, uh, find themselves. That's how your family members find themselves in these, in these groups. And it's important to have empathy for this, cognitive empathy, that no one's choosing this usually. It usually happens to them. It's the emergence of a lot of different uh, drives and motivations through natural processes. And once they're locked into it, they are locked into it in a way that will re require an outside voice to pull them from it. And the quickest way to get a person to reject your attempt to do so is to trigger something called reactance. And reactance is, is when you intuit that your agency is under threat. And we will very strongly push away from this. If you've ever been a teenager or you've ever interacted with a teenager, you've experienced reactance. That's when you know your room needs to be clean. Like There's almost like a neon sign in your head that says, clean your room over and over again. And then your mom comes along and says, hey, you need to clean your room. And you immediately rush in there and like eat a Twix and throw the wrapper on the pile and then like Scrooge McDive into your uh, <laughs> hoarder mountain. Um, that's reactance. You know, that's, that's the, the sense that don't tell me what to do. Don't try to steal my agency. So anything that happens in a conversation, and we can get it, if you'd like, we can get into some of the rhetorical techniques now because that's where we're headed. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, so towards that end, if you're stuck dealing with someone toxic, a family member, a coworker, what is some advice for dealing with that person? So let me discuss this on two fronts. How do you deal with bullying itself? And the other is how do you deal with persuasion in general? Know that one of the hardest things you're going to experience is you need to know right up front, what are your goals? Like you need to have set aside some time to consider by yourself what would be the optimal outcome for one of these conversations that tend to go poorly right now? What are your actual goals? What are your intentions? What do you want from this conversation? If we don't do that up front, it can be very difficult to have the conversation that you you keep failing in ways that don't really make sense to you. And so you need to know, also it's a way to be authentic, transparent, and honest with the other person because you can state that these are this is how you would really like the conversation to go. And know that if your goal is to shift that person's perspective, to have them see the world differently, to if one of the beliefs they currently hold, you want them to have a different belief, or they have a certain attitude that you would wish they'd have a different attitude, or you want to rearrange their value set, if your intention is to change that person's mind in that way, you must offer them an opportunity to speak to you in a way where you are a non-judgmental listener, and you must offer them an opportunity to explore how they got where they are, and you have to be empathetic toward them. You have to acknowledge that they may not be aware of how they arrived at where they're at or why they are still there, why they fight for it. And it can be difficult to offer empathy to someone who is actively aggressing you. It can be very difficult to offer empathy to someone who has a hateful attitude toward you or toward your group. And I totally understand that. So no one is required to engage in this way if it makes you incredibly uncomfortable. There are all sorts of ways to engage in activism that would avoid this kind of back and forth. But if your goal is to change a person's mind, you do have to engage in this way. It's just the way it works. And that means the first thing you you have to acknowledge is if you communicate anything to the other party that can be interpreted as you should be ashamed of yourself, you should be ashamed that you think, feel, or intend to behave in a certain way, it's over. That will torpedo the whole thing. That will activate reactants, and they won't engage with you further. In fact, what they'll do is they'll double down, triple down, they'll aggress even harder, and you will not be able to have the conversation that you want to have. What you should be looking to do with the other party is move them out of the debate frame. You do not want to get into a, I want to win, I need you to lose scenario. I want to prove that I'm right and that you're wrong. You have to think of that as sort of a face-off, and what you want to do is get them into a shoulder-to-shoulder scenario. And how do you get into a shoulder-to-shoulder? You alter the the frame of the conversation to be such that you are trying to solve a mystery together. And the mystery is, I wonder why we disagree. If it's your family member, it's like, I love you. If it's someone who is coming to you from some sort of platform or intellectual source, and you can say that I, I understand you've put a lot of work into this. If you seem to be a reasonable and intelligent person, I find it odd that I look at this issue and you look at this issue and somehow we disagree. I'd like to understand that. I'd like to explore that with you. And you're trying to get buy-in for a different kind of conversation, a conversation where the two of you go shoulder to shoulder and look at the mystery of how could two people disagree about something like this. And in that frame, it's much less likely the person is going to aggress and push back against you in a certain way because they, they're they not going to feel threatened on a number of different levels. Now, when it comes to bullies in general, why do people bully? Well, there's a pretty robust psychological literature into bullying. Usually what's happening is in psychology, for any kind of aggression to qualify as bullying, it must involve an imbalance of power. So this is something that the uh, APA, the CDC, the National Board of School Psychologists they all sort of converge on this idea that bullying is considered distinct from other forms of interpersonal aggression thanks to the power imbalance in which the aggressor has some kind of palpable advantage over the person that they're aggressing against. Also, at about 85% of the time, there are peers present. And that's an important thing uh, because what's really usually happening is the bully is attempting to maintain some kind of social status. They're aware of their place in their group and they wish to maintain it. And in an attempt to feel better because they're threatened in some way, they have some sort of fear, they try to pick out a target they feel they could win against if they could provoke that person into the kind of standoff that would be 
one person aggressing against another. So if it's physical, of course, you know, that's actual threats. That's a different thing than I think we're discussing. But if we're talking about intellectual bullying or conversational bullying, they often try to target people who they feel they can safely dominate. And sometimes in their mind, that'll be people who are considered marginal or people who have uh, violated some moral code they feel like they live by. And those feel like the safer targets from their perspective because they're thinking about their peers as the audience to all of this. So know that provocation is the point in these intellectual bullying situations. They want you to enter into a, I want to win, I want you to lose frame. They want you to enter the debate frame. And if you do enter the debate frame, you've pretty much lost any opportunity to have the kind of discussion that would get that person to see things differently. In fact, as long as they provoke you to having that fight, they can walk away from it. They can feel like there's a draw. Whatever happens there, in the eyes of their peers, they succeeded. And you're giving the bully what they want by entering the debate frame. So I would recommend as a major point of uh, <laughs> advice, never do that. And to avoid that, you need to know your triggers. You need to know what could possibly get you into a shouting match, a, a intellectual push and shove match. Assess your goals. Know what you're. Try to imagine what it is you're um, you're hoping to gain in this conversation, and try to move the frame to a collaboration of, of some kind. And uh, once you've established that sort of collaborative frame, there are steps you can take that will not only nullify the opportunity of the bully to continue bullying, but could actually result in them seeing things differently. If you'd like, we could go through that. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. One way we could do this is I could play act it with you if you'd like. Uh, <laughs> All right. Okay. I'm going to play act it with you and then I'll give you the steps. So here's a way you can practice not allowing yourself to be thrown into a debate frame and to avoid triggering bullies into aggression and also standing up for yourself in a way that doesn't suggest to anybody that you uh, back down. There's one other piece of advice. I can't believe I haven't said this yet. Never talk to people on the internet in this way. Like, um, if you're dealing with a, a bully of some kind, get them face-to-face. -face. Oftentimes, that's all it takes for them to, to back off of that particular that sort of, um, let me punch down, attempt to get you to uh, fight me uh, walking around the pool tables in the bar, hope somebody bumps into me thing that bullies do online. Actual eye contact in, a, in real physical space oftentimes will bring people much more likely into the frame of let's collaborate and figure out what's going on here. Okay, here's some play acting. All right, uh, Andrea. Andrea. Andrea, Bully. I'm so sorry. Oh, <laughs> Getting oh. my name wrong on purpose oh. to make me this. <laughs> Andrea. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Thank you. Uh, what was uh, the last movie you remember watching? Oh, gosh. Uh, um, um, I'm, gonna, I'm under pressure right now. I don't know. I don't watch movies. I've got two babies. <laughs> okay, uh, or anything. It was a TV show, a series? Uh, Alien. Alien. The original Alien? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Okay. So I would love to talk to you about that just a little bit. Are you, are you cool with that? Yeah. I'm wondering, when I think about this movie, Alien, if you were the person that worked at Netflix and wrote the like four-sentence description for people who are browsing around, how would you describe it to in that way? A woman saves the day from aliens, oh. and then she has to keep doing it. <laughs> That's probably why I watched this film. It's It's, you know, validating. I'm wondering, like, upon rewatch, did you like it? Yeah, absolutely. And let's say you were a movie reviewer and you had a very simple system. You're like uh, one to ten. And uh, ten is reserved for the greatest films of all time. And one is reserved for films that uh, make you consider maybe these people should be brought up on charges and go to federal prison for making that movie. Where would you put Alien? Um, I would put Alien as a solid nine. So this movie gets a solid nine, and that is incredibly high rating, considering that 10 would be reserved for the greatest movies ever made. Um, and it's very far from one. I'm wondering, though, why does it not get to the 10? Why does it not reach all the way 10 level for you? A 10 is for the weirdo movies that for whatever reason, I have a chemistry with. I can't explain, like, the movie Clue. Like, I could watch. I'm always in the mood to watch the movie Clue. I cannot explain that. So <laughs> Clue gets a 10. That's amazing. Clue gets a 10. <laughs> and Alien gets a 9. And I cannot explain it. I wonder if you could, though. Like, there 
I wonder if what comes to mind right off the bat if we think, what are some things Clue has that Alien doesn't? It's silly. It's okay. It's got uh, Madeline Kahn and <laughs> Mrs. Peacock. Yeah. And three different endings. I can go on. Okay. And then one other thing about all this, uh, given the time we have. So is you could have given Alien an eight, and it still would have been like unbelievably high. I'm wondering what got it higher than a seven or an eight for you. Like what 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 got it all the way up to nine? It's just beautifully done. It's just a perfect. I want to call it a perfect film. And I think nine is pretty damn perfect. Yeah, yeah. And when you say beautifully done, what like comes to mind immediately? To, like as an example of that, the tension, uh, the tension throughout the character is just so extraordinary. Right. Sigourney Weaver. In just this little bit of conversation we've had, I, I'm starting to get an idea, and so are you, because in this conversational technique, we, we're sharing the insights together. This strong woman protagonist is, seems to be a value that we could explore more, more deeply. You pointed out not just uh, the character of Ripley, but also you talked about Madeline Kahn. You also discussed things that in the um, include like the fact that it's silly, the fact that it's clever, the fact that there are multiple endings. The fact that it was a unique and unusual in comparison to other films, Alien, you were starting to explore how it was visually stunning and, and the cinematography. And uh, also, I enjoyed you said she saves the world from uh, monsters and has to keep doing it over and over again. And every point that you were describing things that— I was talking about myself. That, <laughs> yes. I'm just go on. Just yes. kidding. I'm so kidding. That's exactly what I'm saying. No, I'm really? At. at every point— you were yes. At every point, you were revealing you. You were revealing your attitudes, your values, your beliefs. The things that, whenever I asked, "Did you like it?" you said, "Yes, of course." And that was an immediate response. It was almost like bumping your knee against the table. And I asked, "Did that hurt?" All you have to do is check in with your emotional state, your feeling, your body, and say, "Yeah, it hurt." With Alien or Clue, like. If I ask, did you like it? It's very easy for you to sample your attitude. It's right there. But if I ask you to start justifying and rationalizing and explaining it, it starts becoming more of a, mm, well, hmm, I don't know if I can. And as we start to go deeper and deeper within that and elaborate more and more, a lot of times it's a fascinating revelation to you, even though this is an emotion that you're experiencing and all of it's inside you. And I'm not trying to copy and paste anything out of myself into your mind. I'm just elaborating, paraphrasing, and mirroring. So in a conversation with someone that you've had an issue with in the past, especially a relationship you want to maintain, a family member, and especially with someone who tends to employ bullying tactics against you, the first piece of advice, of course, is get them out of debate frame and do not allow yourself to get pulled into debate frame. That's what they want. They want you to fight because they get you to fight, there's a possibility they can win. And all they're looking for is a win-lose situation. And that is not the kind of conversation that changes minds. And you need to make sure that you stay out of this frame too. Don't try to defeat this person as some sort of intellectual opponent. That's not what it's about. The steps, and there are many different versions of this, I'll give you the way that I think they come together, is number one, after you've committed to all the things I just described, just like we were doing with the movie, establish rapport, which means you assure the other person you aren't out to shame them. Ask for consent to explore their reasoning and be transparent about what you're up to. And then move on to, if you're discussing a fact-based issue, ask for a claim. If you're discussing an attitude-based issue, ask them how they feel about it. And then if you've got all that out in the open, you want to confirm that you've understood what they have to say and repeat it back in your own words and ask if you've done a good job. And you keep repeating that until they feel satisfied, almost like you're a lawyer for their side and you're trying to put it into a perfect argument. Clarify any definitions they put forth. Like when you said beautiful, like I want to make sure I understand what you mean by that word. And when you tell me what you mean by it, I'm going to use your definitions going forward, not mine. And then if we're discussing a fact-based issue, ask for a numerical measure of confidence. Like how sure are you of this, like in a percentage-wise? And if we're talking about an attitude like we were with a movie, you know, give me a sort of a numerical measure of where you put yourself positive and negative. And then ask for, and this is the most important part of it, 
what reasons do you have to hold that level of confidence or put yourself on that scale and where you put it? And then ask why you're not higher, why you're not lower, start to really get all that elaboration outside of the feeling and get that out in front of each other. And then move on to asking what methods are you using to judge the quality of your reasons here? And this is an interesting pivot. I've We've established what your feelings are. We've established why you feel like they are justified. And then now I'm going to ask you, what method do you use to determine that that is an actual good justification? Like, what was the process you're using to get there? And you focus on that for the rest of the conversation and simply listen, summarize, repeat, mirror, reflect, and hold space for that person to actually generate their first fully formed opinion on the matter. And as impossible as this may seem, as hard as this will be to believe, that's all it usually takes. There's a very high success rate in rhetorical techniques that follow this format for people to not even recognize their opinion coming out of that conversation compared to what it was going into it. Even to the point where oftentimes people will defend themselves as if they've always felt the way they felt when clearly it will have changed somewhat. And also, when you wish them well at the end of this conversation, offer to do this as many times as you want in the future. And it will take time. Don't uh, expect to change a person's mind and get well, 180 in one conversation, though it does happen sometimes. But what you have established now is a pipeline. A You've established a routine. You've established a, a, a dynamic you can return to over and over. And hopefully, or after many conversations, you will be able to get somewhere with this person. And you've made it very difficult for them to bully you in the future because now you're an ally in the formation of their actual opinion on the matter. Ally in the sense, you're not like reinforcing their reality. No, because, because like one of the things that makes these work is that if their attitude truly is harmful, this will be discovered through the course of the conversation. If they truly are factually incorrect, this will be revealed through the course of the conversation. If their methods are faulty and they arrived here in a sort of a, a mistaken way through poor epistemology, that will be revealed through these conversations as well. So there's an opportunity for you to change your mind also. But if you really feel like the facts are on your side or that you are arguing for the reduction of harm that is legitimate, these techniques will arrive there eventually. And you are an ally in helping them metacognate and uh, introspect, not an ally in their uh, current position, if you're looking at it that way. I can't thank you enough. And if people want to understand more uh, in, in confronting this strange time that we're all in, check out Dave McRaney's book, How Minds Change. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about, head to youarenotsosmart.com or gaslitnationpod.com or check the show notes inside your podcast player. You can find my book, How Minds Change, wherever they put books on shelves and ship them in trucks. Details are at davidmcraney.com and I'll have all of that in the show notes as well, right there in your podcast player. You can find all the past episodes of this show at Stitcher, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Audible, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or You Are Not So Smart. Follow me on Twitter at David McCraney. Follow the show at Not Smart Blog. We're also on Facebook slash You Are Not So Smart. And if you'd like to support this operation, go to patreon.com slash You Are Not So Smart. Pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad free. But the higher amounts, they get you posters, t-shirts, sign books, and all sorts of other stuff. The opening music, that's Clash by Caravan Palace. And the easiest way to support this program is just tell everyone you know about this show. And uh, especially if there's an episode you really, really like, share that somewhere and say, hey, you might like this. And check back in about two weeks for a fresh new episode.
At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.